we do someone a very big service when we invite them into the work we're doing. Whether it's inviting them into your crowdfunding for the studio you described, whether it's inviting them into volunteer where you volunteer or donate to the nonprofits you care about, because if they mean that much to you, it might just mean that much or more to someone that you know. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Wendy Steele, founder and CEO of Impact 100, a global nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering women to create transformational impact in their communities. Now, over the last number of years, she's collected more than $123 million from 65 local chapters in four countries. She's been recognized as Forbes 550 under 50, but also created a movement of communities making impact through social entrepreneurship and change. It's a fantastic story about how she's built this amazing group of people who are helping in their community by getting involved. The impact has been amazing. And for me, especially as what we're doing in Nobody Studios and building our community there, it was fascinating to learn how someone had done it in a different domain. So before we understand how Wendy did it, let's find out how she got started. When we're bothered by a problem, and I think this is how a lot of entrepreneurs start too, when you're bothered by a problem and you can't really get it out of your head, I believe that's because you've got some part in solving it. And that's really what happened here. I was a banker. Yes, I was involved in the community, but I kept going back to the things that women said that they didn't have enough money to make a difference, that it wouldn't matter. Sort of suspect of where does the money go when you make a donation and all of the other things. You know, I travel for work, so I can't have regular meetings or I'm a stay-at-home mom and I can't justify paying a sitter to come out and volunteer. All of these things in the summer of 2001 sort of became too heavy for me to carry. So I got out a notebook. I did what I often do and I want to clear my head and think. I just wrote down everything they had said, all the barriers, all the reasons they weren't involved. And one by one, I thought, hmm, how do we change this? How do we make it? So that women do feel like they have a place and so that the nonprofits who are out there doing the really hard work day after day, week after week can get the funding they really need. That's literally how Impact 100 came to be. There's one thing you said there that just jumped out of me instantly was this notion of when you come across the problem, there's sort of, in essence, it seems like you're meant to be part of the solution. You know, when it strikes you, that's so interesting to hear somebody say that. For me as well, I'm an entrepreneur, started a lot of businesses, and a lot of them have been born from frustration or seeing an opportunity that something could be better and yet it's not being addressed well. But instantly, the technique we often use is this notion of customer discovery, interviewing people, trying to get to the unmet needs, trying to understand the obstacles in the way, similar with an unlearning. It's interesting to hear like that was almost intuitively what you went to do is starting to synthesize and capture 
a lot of these challenges that people were facing, or if you will, objections or reasons Mm -hmm. why we can't go forward with this. So what were some of the ones that sort of surprised you the most as you were writing down that list, things that you were like, it's almost shocked, if you will, that were objections as to why this was a challenge for people? I would say almost all of the objections for me were surprising simply because I grew up in a family that we didn't have any sort of formal sit down talk about being generous or giving back, but it was clearly in all the ways that we were raised in terms of leaving the world better than you found it. And that included helping out a neighbor or picking up a piece of trash instead of walking past it, thinking someone else is going to do that, you know, all those things. And so I'd always built community service, volunteerism, philanthropy, if you will, into my working daily life. And what was surprising for me was that economics were not the reason that people weren't giving. In my mind, now bear in mind, I was a banker and I was an economics major in college. So I do appreciate numbers, but I also appreciate the history of what makes people the way they are. And in my mind, the most logical reason people wouldn't want to give back is simply economic. They can't afford it. They don't have enough or in their minds, they don't have enough. And although that was a piece of what I learned, what I learned was a level of cynicism. And today there's probably a lot more cynicism about a lot more topics than what I was dealing with back in the summer of 2001. But it always sort of breaks my heart a little bit because I think when we're cynical, it means you're imagining the worst in somebody else. And if we go through our lives believing that they're not going to be good, believing the worst of whoever it is, then we'll never understand them. It's very hard to change that position. But when you go in neutral or you go in sort of like a scientist, like my hypothesis is this, and let me see if I can find evidence to the contrary or to validate it. Even that's better. But this level of cynicism and concern, it was problematic. And the thing is, though, yes, it was problematic for the community because the community, those nonprofits, they needed the women. They needed their heads. They needed their hearts. And frankly, they needed their checkbooks. But the women needed no what it felt like to be a part of the solution, what it felt like to really understand the problems that our neighbors are facing and the remarkable people out there running nonprofits trying to solve them. Because when we can shift from concern about the headlines, cynicism, mistrust, all those things, and suddenly realize that in fact, we can be a part of the solution, It changes your perspective, not just about that thing, whatever it is, but about the world as a whole. Things become possible when you recognize that you can be a part of the solution. Within the Impact 100 world, that's really what we do for women. And I guess I haven't explained how the model works. So at a high level, local communities of women come together of at least 100 They each donate $1,000. They pool 100% of that together. They offer it back to the local community in grants of $100,000 or more across five broad focus areas. 
So we are largely women-funding communities, not necessarily women-funding women and girls. Most of the women I know care about the entire community, and they want to fund solutions that are really going to move the needle. So all of our grants are given with a lens of, is this solution going to be transformational, and will it be sustainable? And then it's one woman, one donation, and one vote. A wealthy woman can't buy five memberships by writing a check for $5,000. She can, however, write a check for $5,000 and either prepay five years of membership or buy her own membership and offer the $4,000 as a matching grant or sponsorship to women who otherwise couldn't afford to join their local chapter. So there are lots of ways for women to get involved. And in fact, in Australia, we have chapters that are gender neutral. But the idea is to truly democratize the experience. It's phenomenal. And there's two things I want to unpack there. One, again, a really interesting point is it's almost like our mindset. If we have negative assumptions about individuals, people, situations, it's very difficult for us to get past them. That's one thing that really struck me. I, I even have this issue myself with some individuals in my life where I'm like, oh, they always behave like that. Every conversation, I'm almost looking for clues just for me to revalidate my negative assumption about that person's behavior or mindset. And we're all guilty of that. As you say, like it removes the scientist, it removes the curiosity uh, to actually break that mental model, I think is a huge thing. But to just underline the amazing work around Impact 100, this notion that you came up with this idea of at least 100 women coming together, putting in $1,000 each to create 100000 to donate to a local charity. You've already 60 plus chapters across the United States. It's growing so fast. So just before we dive into the work you're doing, tell us a little bit more about how you came up with this. What was the thing you had to unlearn about how you were doing a lot of your work to even get to the notion of starting a community funded initiative, right? And I love this because we've just done a crowdfunding for our venture studio called Nobody Studio. And the power of the crowd has just blown me away. You're tapping into that. That was one of the things that really sort of struck me. So tell us a little bit about how you even got to this notion of Impact 100. What was the moment that struck you that said, I need to do this and here's how we could potentially do it? I had the benefit of being kind of an outsider to the world of nonprofits. So don't misunderstand. I was a banker. That was my career. And on the side, I cared about the community and I gave back in whatever manner that I could. But all the traditional forms of philanthropy had, in fact, worked for me, in part because Every job I've ever taken from the first one out of college, part of my interview of the company before I say yes had always been, how do you feel about giving back to the community? And I was very fortunate. Every single bank I ever worked for were not just the flashy sentence or two on the website or in the lobby of the bank building, but legitimately cared about the community. So I didn't have to take vacation time to go volunteer on a board or to go serve in the soup kitchen. Well, most women didn't have that. And so it is, I think, my 
empathy and the ability to get enough information by asking enough questions and then literally sort of imagining a world where I traveled constantly for work. Now, that's more true of me now than it was back then when I was a banker, but imagining what it was like when budgeting to be a stay-at-home mom, I didn't budget any extra for me to be able to leave the kids and go do something in the community. Imagine, then how would I get involved? You become limited. And that's exactly what these women were facing. Now, I do believe that my kind of being an outsider was, in hindsight, part of my superpower because I, I didn't think of all the limitations. I didn't think of all the ways that it's always been done. But I was aware enough at that point, so I was a little bit naive. But I also knew that there was a lot I didn't know. And so after sort of spelling this out on a spiral notebook that summer, I picked up the phone. And I was on vacation at the time, I should say. So I picked up the phone and called people in Cincinnati, called my friends who knew more than I did, who had much deeper experience in nonprofits. And I said, I have this crazy idea. Hear me out. But then tell me what's wrong with it, because it's so simple. There must be something wrong with it. And if there isn't, then it must already exist. And if it does, I think I know a lot of women who might be interested in doing something like this. Now, the women that I called, they not only had skills and experience that I didn't have, but they also had connections. Cincinnati is a wonderful place to live, but like so many communities, it kind of matters if you're not from there. And needless to say, I'm not from there. And so... I got some people who were native Cincinnatians, you know, multiple generations Cincinnatians, as well as people who really understood the nonprofit landscape. And what I heard again and again is, oh, my word, this is incredible and it doesn't exist. And I'd love to help you make it happen. Yeah, it's great little clues that you're sharing there, though, as well. Even about this notion of getting started like trying to find, activate people in a community. And even as you say, like while you may have moved to a new city and I'm from a small town, so we often joke, unless you live there for 50 years, you're still not considered local sometimes. What's really interesting is though, that you're being very aware and deliberate about how to activate that community. Understanding that there's people who've lived there for, as you say, many generations who have these established networks that are known maybe would have grown up with people years over years, as well as people like yourself who are new to the the area and have the excitement, the inspiration to drive this thing along and creating, it's almost like a cross-functional group of people where you can both activate folks who have the existing networks, as well as bring the innovation, if you will, that you've identified to these groups. And the other piece as well, that I think is a really subtle thing, and I think you're underselling this a little bit is the simplicity with so many great initiatives, they're communicated so well because their simple ideas positioned very well. And that's one of the things instantly when I discovered about Impact 100, it was like, oh, wow, 100 women, $1,000, 100,000 to fund impact in the world. And they're lovely numbers. They resonate in your mind as you hear about this. So as you started to get momentum behind this idea. What were some of the first things that you tried that sort of didn't work out as you planned? And 
you actually then had to unlearn, if you will, again, about building out these communities. There were many. So one of the things is you alluded to this in one of your earlier questions. When you think about how do you find women who would be interested in doing something like this and have the capacity to write a check for $1,000? Well, I can tell you that part of what I did that summer is I wrote all these names on a list of people that I thought met that criteria, but I was wrong. I was wrong in both directions. There were times that I was sure somebody would just love it and also have the capacity to write a check. Now, bear in mind, when I created Impact 100, I had myself never written a check for $1,000 to a single charity before. I'd never done that, but I thought I could. And I also understand the power of that big number. So I was making assumptions about people that I knew of sometimes well, sometimes not so well. And I was wrong. There was a woman who I absolutely wasn't going to ask because I didn't think she'd be interested. And frankly, I didn't think she'd have the capacity. I think she had to ask me three or four times to tell me about this thing I'm doing. And I kept sort of putting it aside because I didn't want to make it uncomfortable. And she ultimately said, I'd like to hand you a check for $1,000, please. You know, it was really, that's how bad it was for me. But that's really what I learned. And the same thing happened the other way where I thought based on how somebody lived or what they said or whatever, that they would be interested and have capacity and you can be wrong. What I learned that I have held on to ever since is we do someone a very big service when we invite them into the work we're doing, whether it's inviting them into your crowdfunding for the studio you described, whether it's inviting them into volunteer where you volunteer or donate to the nonprofits you care about, because if they mean that much to you, it might just mean that much or more to someone that you know. I think sometimes we feel awkward about asking people for money. And the truth is, when we invite them into what we're doing, if they say no, like that's not my gig, I'm not interested in that, it's fine. It's so not personal about how you ask. But if you don't ask, you just might miss the opportunity to make their life more rich, more fulfilled, more complete in ways that you just can't calculate. And when you look at it that way, just keep asking, keep talking, keep bringing it up because the people who want to join you will be so glad. And the people for whom it doesn't resonate, they're going to move on. They'll forget about it by the time the coffee's over. You will beat yourself up, but they won't. They're moving on. Such a good point. This is a big breakthrough for me recently too as well. The notion of when you're doing a fundraising, whether funding these initiatives that you do or crowdfunding that I just went through, there's parts of me that just were the thought of asking people for money just made my skin crawl. I was like, oh my God, I can never do that. How could I ever ask someone that? But just as you've alluded to, one of the huge breakthroughs for me was this notion of it wasn't necessarily about asking people to write checks. It was actually about telling the story of what we're doing, why we're doing it. And the other point that really struck me, as you said, is people then start to self-select. And you are always surprised by the people who are like, that's the thing I want to be part of. So what I found and myself doing is that I wasn't sitting there 
going around with a can, shaking it, going, please, people, put some money in this pot to fund this startup. I was talking to people about what we're doing, why it's important to us, how they can be involved, what's interesting about it. And the people who that resonated with, it was a lightning rod for them to go, that's the ticket I want to buy to jump on that train to where it's going. I was absolutely surprised by the people who decided to invest in our crowdfunding. Sometimes the volume and amount that some people put in, I was like, whoa, I would never have expected that. This notion of invitation is really important. So many people in the team, myself obviously included, struggled with this notion. Like it's always felt wrong to ask people to fund you rather than sharing this story of what you're working towards and do they want to be part of that journey. It's a huge mindset flip for people to recognize what a huge thing I personally have to unlearn about is this sharing the story and letting people self-select. That's really what you're doing. You're not asking people to yeah. write you a check because they know you, because you've had friends. It's actually the opposite of that. So it's just a great nugget to help people understand that when they are trying to go through a process of raising awareness or funding for what they're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. It really also takes sometimes a personal invitation, a let me tell you, my friend, what I'm working on, or let me tell you to this large group of people what I'm working on. And we always think that if we, quote unquote, ask, if we invite someone that we're friends with, it'll be awkward. But I've actually found the reverse to be true. If you don't ask them because you figure, well, they know we're friends, they know what I'm doing they know, then they actually get more hurt and more sort of annoyed that you didn't invite them in. So often we make these assumptions that someone else asked them, that they understand. If they were curious, they'd ask me. But in fact, in their minds, they're saying, well, my goodness, Barry must not want me involved because he's told these other five people and he's never had a conversation with me. So that's a hard thing to unlearn. But once you do, it does set you free in so many ways. Hey, you've had, honestly, extraordinary results. The website says you've 60 chapters. You may even have doubled that. Who knows? It's growing like wildfire, which is amazing. If you could pick one or two just example initiatives that you've done that have really sort of surprised you or brought a lot of joy to you personally that you've been involved with that have benefited really from this amazing community that you've created? One of the interesting things that might be a surprise is to give you the numbers, we've got 68 chapters currently and we're in four countries. We gave our first grant in September of 2002. And by the end of 2022, 20 years later, we gave away 123,000 back in 2002. We've given away more than 123 million 20 years later, growing at a thousand times. The surprising part about that is that 100% of those chapters, it all came from organic growth, all of it. We have never had the bandwidth, which is kind of too bad. So when we talk about what's next, you know, I've got big plans for what's next, but in our first 20 years, all of the growth has been organic. And it has been because individuals in a community raise their hand. 
They somehow heard about Impact 100 and they said, this sounds like something my community needs. I want to bring a chapter here. How do I do that? That's 100% of our growth. And you think about just for the statistics, the world's largest chapter is in a place called Pensacola, Florida, which demographically is not a very wealthy community, yet they're celebrating 20 years this year. And for the last 10, they've given away over a million dollars in a single day. They've been giving $1.1 million for about the last five years because more than 1,100 women come together in this town of Pensacola and they give 11 grants of $100,000 in a single day that has come to be called Million Dollar Sunday. Now, on the other side, we have some chapters that are very happy to stay at 100 to 200 members. We've yeah. got chapters who are in the threes and fours, and we've got chapters that are bigger. But Pensacola is the biggest. After that, we've got a couple of one in 800 and some members, one 700 and some members, and then a lot in the 500s and four and three. But each community, they decide how big they want to be. And it's easy to come into it thinking, well, bigger is better. And to a degree, bigger is absolutely better because you have more money to give away. You can help more causes. You can lift your community up. But it really needs to be right-sized for the community. Otherwise, you spend way too much time working too hard to push that rock up a hill that maybe didn't need to go all the way up the hill you've chosen. I completely respect leaders who say, this is our sweet spot. This is where we want to stay. But then if you imagine, and this is the part, well, there's so much that I've learned. The part that's really remarkable to me is that when we take these members and all these communities around the globe, at least 50% of the women who join have never written a check to $1,000 to a single charity prior to joining Impact. The other 50% are what I call seasoned philanthropists. They've done that and they see Impact as an addition to their portfolio. Once a nonprofit makes it through the vetting process and either makes it to finalists or ends up getting it, grant awarded. Other surprising thing is that women really connect with these nonprofits. And so in addition to getting funding, if they receive a grant, or sometimes even when they don't receive a grant, what we've learned is that this network of women, once they know about your nonprofit and they believe in the work you're doing, even if they don't have any material way to help you, They'll open their network. They'll introduce you to somebody. Yeah. They'll volunteer. They'll give you an in-kind gift. They'll tell you to come back and apply the next year. And so what's fascinating is I thought the $100,000 grants would be the story. Like that's the story that people want to hear. And it is. It's a beautiful story. But what's really cool is when I meet these women and they say, you know, I started out, this was all new to me, and then I served on the board. And then I found this nonprofit and I didn't even know the problem existed. I certainly didn't know this nonprofit was solving it, but I now have gotten in touch with my passion. And so I'm serving on that board or I'm redirecting any, all of my giving just to go to this organization. We find that the impact of Impact 100 is 
women step up and lead in new ways because now they know what's happening in the community. And so they're advocating politically. Yeah. And the entire economy gets buoyed. If you imagine, even at a mid-sized chapter, a community few hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in grants every year. That's money that doesn't have to come from anywhere else. That's new money often in the community. It means more jobs, more people able to take those jobs. It means prosperity. It lifts all boats. It is the catalyst that starts the economic engine in a community. It's absolutely true. You know this as an economist, which is kind of the fun part about all of these things. So weird, yeah. Exactly. Like designing these mechanisms that actually allow communities to flourish, both from a personal point of view and an economic point of view as well. And it's just amazing to see your work you're doing. I think if anyone, I'd highly recommend people go and look at impact100global.org. There's just like great pictures and stories of all of this community coming together all over, obviously, four different countries now, I'm sure. So it's going to continue to grow. As you look ahead then, what are you most excited about? What do you see the next evolution of this community and how you're continuing, if you will, to develop it and develop yourself really as someone leading this group over time? My work in Impact 100 Global is to help the existing chapters reach their highest potential, whatever that is, and new chapters to lodge. Bear in mind that Impact 100 chapters around the globe are led by volunteers. Well, right now, and frankly, for quite some time, the pace of new chapters, people who are raising their hand saying, I want to bring this to my country, I want to bring this to my community, was so much bigger than I can effectively serve. What I imagine moving forward is allowing the movement of Impact 100 that we operate from global to get the sustainability so that not only can I proactively reach out and say to chapters, you're heading into your third year and I know that there's going to be a bump in the road here. Let me help you navigate that before you get there instead of waiting for the call. And also to proactively reach out to underestimated, underrepresented communities and people and come alongside and say, look, I believe that you can lead an Impact 100 chapter. And when you do, you will be a part of lifting your friends and neighbors up out of whatever situation you're in and making it better. Because when we can, yes, continue to react to all the people who raise their hands, all the people who need help, and also go out and invite people in who are not the people who are comfortable raising their hands. Impact has always been built on diversity, diversity of skill set, experience, in every demographic definition, both on around the leadership table and in the membership. And that's great. But if we rely on people to raise their hands, we're automatically leaving communities out. And so the best thing we can do for Impact 100 to really reach its full potential is to have the ability to sort of evangelize, to go into communities, tell the story, and then help women bring this important movement into their own backyards and watch it grow. Yes, nurture and help them, but 
go to them and invite them in. It's amazing work you're doing, Wendy. Truly inspiration to hear these stories and not only about how you've gone about this, but the systems you've put in place, the, the, the way you've really tackled this problem bit by bit and created something with huge momentum and global impact already. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. I highly recommend everybody goes to check out impact100global.org or follow you on LinkedIn and Twitter and as Wendy H. Steele everywhere so people can follow her. Any closing thoughts or comments for our guests before you go? No, my gosh, no. Thank you, Barry. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and we look forward to following what your work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years. And who knows how many beyond that? So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself. <laughs>